presence of the Lord in this place and uh, appreciate each and every one of you being here. I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5 and uh, we'll begin reading at verse 14. Amen. The Bible says, for the love of Christ, the love of God compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Amen. I want to uh, talk to you just for the next little bit on this title. What's your carrot? What's your carrot? Amen. And if you will give me your undivided attention, you may be seated this morning. Human beings, we, we learn to negotiate early in life. Um, and any parent in the room today can attest to this. Um, as early as age two, children are offering to uh, eat more vegetables at dinner if it means ice cream for dessert, right? Um, and by the tender age of three, kids have developed a whole arsenal of negotiation tactics. Um, and I have a, com- a confession to make this uh, this morning. Uh, I feel like this is a safe place. Is this a safe place? Am I? <laughs> is this a safe house? Am I surrounded by friends today? Don't judge me. Um, but my confession is I have bribed my children. Safe place. And uh, a lot I have bribed my children. Um, not so much with Bennett just because he only knows two words. Um, but definitely with Easton. Um, you know, going into this parenting thing, I thought, I thought I would be in control because of my age, um, my size, my wisdom, uh, even a little money. Um, was I ever wrong? <laughs> ever so wrong. And here's what I've come to learn. A toddler doesn't respond to reason. A toddler responds to bribes. And somebody said, amen. Okay, and here's what I had to learn when in tough negotiations with uh, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, you better bring a good offer to the table or no deal. Okay, and I had to learn what it was that motivated Easton, what what pushed him, what really captured his attention. I mean, it wasn't like I could say, hey, buddy, um, if uh, if you eat all of that spinach, uh, I'll give you an avocado for dessert. No deal. Okay. You know, I could be like, hey, if you're good at school today, if you're a good boy, uh, when you get home, I'll let you take out the trash. Right. Those are, that's, that's a bad deal. It's not, especially in a child's eyes, it's, it's not 
a good deal. Why? Why couldn't I do that? Well, because he's five and he's not motivated by housework. Okay. He's not, he's not motivated by avocados. Who is? By show of hand. What? Get out of here. I'm just kidding. Okay. But there is one thing that Easton is motivated by, and that is T-O-Y-S. Toys, for those of you who cannot spell. <laughs> Toys. Okay. Yesterday, Mallory had a uh, bridal shower that she had to attend, and uh, Easton and I, we got to hang out all day. It was a guy's day. We were missing Bennett, but... He, you know, he had to go and endure the bridal shower. We prayed for him. But um, East and I, we got to hang out all day. And, uh, I mean, he was he was great. Yeah, I mean, good. Uh, I think it's because he got a lot of sleep. How many know if your children get sleep, they're angels? If no sleep, devils. Um, so he had gotten a lot of sleep. And we were, I said, hey, I need to go to Walmart. Let's, you know, I got to go get some stuff. And he, he never, he never said a word. I mean, he was like, yeah, let's go to, let's go to Walmart. I said, I got to pick up a few things. And we walked through the door, Brother Bishop, and, uh, we get a card. I said, you want to ride in the car? He said, yeah, I want to ride the car. And then all of a sudden he looks at me and he says, dad, was, was I good today? It was a little later in the day, you know, it was early in the morning. Dad, was I good today? And he's looking up. Was I good today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going to be a lawyer, I'm telling you. I mean, he knows how to, I mean, he knows how to just phrase it up perfectly. I mean, how to set it up. He doesn't just go full blast. Hey, can I have this? He works it. Okay. He works me. Um, so he said, dad, was I good today? And I said, man, you've been, and before I could even think about it, I said, you've been awesome today. And then, and I mean, it hit me as soon as I said it, I know where this is going. I know exactly where this is going. And sure enough, he, he started, he said, he said, let's, let's go over by the toys, dad. Let's look at the toys. Let's see what the guy, I mean, he's got every toy at Walmart besides the girl stuff and I'm not buying him the girl stuff. So we're walking through and I told him, I said, Hey bud, you've been good, but you know, that doesn't mean you get a toy every time you're good. And, um, so he's, he's trying to work his little magic and. So we're walking through Walmart, we're walking through every aisle, and he's, he's a, he's a picky toy person. I mean, it's not just any, cho- any toy. It, it's not just, you know, any, he's got, you know, he's got to go through and he's got to look at it. He's got to dissect. He's got to look at it. Like, he acts like he's reading the back. I'm like, you're not reading the back. Get out of here. So we go through and we're walking through the aisle, but that's, that's, that's what, that's what motivates him to be a good boy. Okay. Toys are what motivates him. I'm not going to tell you whether I got him a toy or not because I don't want you to judge me as a father, but toys are what motivates him, okay? He will be good all day if it means receiving a bright, new, shiny plastic superhero in a box, okay? He will be a good child, okay? It's what motivates him to obey. Um Jeremy Betham, who was an English philosopher in the early 1800s, had this theory on motivation about the carrot. And this theory is derived from the old story of a donkey. And the best way to move the donkey was to put a carrot out in front of him. 
Okay. And the rider, he would take a stick and he would tie a carrot on a string and he would sit on the donkey and would hold out the carrot out in front of the donkey in order to get the animal to move forward. The carrot is the reward for moving. Okay. It is the reward for doing something. And the rider, he would dangle that carrot out there and it would motivate the donkey to get up and go after it. And Bentham's theory was this. People are motivated by self-interest. People are motivated by self-interest. And that's what I want to talk with us about here this morning. What is your carrot? What motivates you? What moves you forward? What drives you? What, what's your reasoning for getting up, being here this morning? What is your carrot? And more specifically, what motivates you to be obedient to the word of God and to the voice of God? Um, Easton's motivation for being obedient is toys. It's, it's fun. Okay. I'll be a good boy dad if I can have fun, if I can have toys, if I can do my thing. That's his carrot. So what's your carrot? What motivates you to obey God? What is it that drives you? And I want to be transparent with you this morning. Throughout my journey as a Christian, um, I have had these moments where God felt near to me and obedience was, was just like breathing. Okay. It, it, it is something that it's something that's so natural. Okay. Do you understand what I mean when I, when I say that? Um, like, like I don't have to think about it. Uh, I don't have to consider it. I don't have to weigh out the options. I just, I'm just God. This is what you want. Let's, let's do it. Let's, let's do it. That this is what pleases you. So that's what I'm going to do. Then I've had seasons where obedience to Christ, obedience to the word of God, it, it, it kind of felt like an all out assault on my hopes and my dreams. Okay. I'm just being honest with you this morning. Like I would get, I would get all my plans in order and I would get all my, my dreams and I would plan out, I would map out my life and this is what I want to do. And this is what I want to be. And, and then I would hear the voice of God say, no, I would hear God say, no, that's not my plan for you, Bryce. That's not my will for your life. And I'm just like, God, come on. Are you serious? Cut me some slack here. I need this. This is what I want. This is my desire. Can't you just, can't, can I just, can I, can I just, do, can you? And I'm trying to like work it out. I'm trying to reason with God and I turn into a five-year-old little boy and I say, but why? Why can't I? Why can't I do this? Again, in my own story, and I'm guessing probably in most of yours, sometimes obedience comes easy. It's just like breathing. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to consider it. You're just doing it. And then sometimes for me, obedience has felt like God wants to rain on my parade and doesn't want me to enjoy life. Regardless of the season, regardless of the season that you're in, regardless of the season that I'm in, our motivations toward obedience matter. Okay? You follow me? That's what I want to talk about this morning is what the motivations are that drive you, 
that drive me toward obedience because there are motivations that are not good. There are motivations that are not right. And then there are motivations that are good and motivations that, that are right. And this morning I want to talk about the primary motivation, the primary driver of, of, uh, of Christian obedience. Okay. I want to talk about the main carrot. Okay. Well, what is your carrot? What is your motivation? Why? Because our motivations matter. Listen to me, church. Our motivations matter. And how, and we know our motivations matter because the Bible says they matter. Okay? Matthew 6 and 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Did you all catch that? Did you hear that Jesus cares about the motivation of righteousness, not just righteousness itself, but the motivation. There's a, that's, that's a little tough for some to, for some to swallow. It's a little heavy of a text. And the, the text isn't be righteous. It's be righteous for the right reasons. That seems a little, you read that and you're like, man, that seems a little over demanding, right? That's like, whoa, that's a little heavy. I mean, and we think to ourselves sometimes, shouldn't Jesus just rejoice that somebody is, is representing him? Shouldn't Jesus be excited that somebody's got the WWJD t-shirt on today and, and we're witnessing to everybody and we're, we're praying for people out in public? Shouldn't he just be happy about that? Shouldn't God just be pleased that some of us are going, God, I'm going to do this your way. You know, what's, what's, what's wrong with the little people thinking that's awesome? What's wrong with the little people seeing me do that and, and think that's awesome? Well, he, he thinks there's something wrong with that. The motive behind works of righteousness matters in the eyes of God. What's your carrot? What's your motive? Even, I mean, you, you look through, and I'm just giving just a few examples here. Even you look at giving in the Bible, giving, okay? Second Corinthians 9 and 7 says this, each one must give as he has what? Decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So it's not just giving generously that God loves, but he loves a heart that is transformed, that delights in being generous, not the heart that is guilted into giving in the offering, right? That's not what God is pleased by, not what God desires. He wants a heart that is transformed to love generosity, not just the acts, a- actions of generosity. Okay, you follow me this morning? Okay, I'm going somewhere. It's not just be obedient, but be obedient with the right heart. These sometimes, you read these, and they almost seem like unbearable weights that the scripture puts on us. But there's, there, there's a reason that weight has been placed on us as Christians. There's a purpose for our obedience. There's a purpose. There's a why to what we do. And ultimately, it leads us to joy. Right? Okay? Because obedience will lead you to not just life, but it will lead you to life in abundance. Okay? Adam and Eve had the Garden of Eden, and all they had to do was obey the voice of God. Okay? Obey what God said to do, and they had everything at their disposal. 
Obedience would lead you to joy. Obedience will lead you to a life that is fulfilled. So 2 Corinthians 5 is our text, and I want to talk about the primary motivation for Christian obedience. Um, and it's not the only one, but it is the primary one. 2 Corinthians 5.14, starting in verse 14, says, For the love of Christ controls us. The version we read over service, it says, compels us. The love of God. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Okay? For the Apostle Paul, who at one time hated Christianity, he hated Jesus Christ. He became a believer and then became the greatest Christian that we have probably ever come to know. What compelled him, I ask, in his obedience? What was it? What was his carrot? What was his driving factor? You know what it was? The love of Christ. His obedience was a bit different than our obedience in magnitude. The way the book of Acts ended was Paul headed toward Jerusalem. And all along the way, the Spirit was testifying to Paul that what awaited him in Jerusalem was imprisonment and affliction. When God is saying, when you get to where I'm telling you to get, what waits for you is affliction and imprisonment. And he's like, now, now let's do this. Okay. That's a type of wrestling with obedience. That's probably different than what we're experiencing. Okay. And you wonder what's compelling Paul? What's driving him? What's the, what's the carrot? What, why would he keep going along the journey, brother Bishop? Why would he keep going? Even though he knew that what waited him was affliction, was imprisonment. You know what it was? It was the love of God. He said, it's the love of God that controls us. How does the love of God manifest itself to us? It manifests itself us to in the person and the work of Jesus Christ that we have been justified, that we have been adopted, and we are called the sons and the daughters, and that we are his, and when we are his, we are his indeed. Yeah. What's the Bible say? God is Love. When he says, that compels me, the love of Christ compels me, you know what basically compelled him? Jesus Christ compelled him. Jesus Christ is his motivation. Jesus Christ is his carrot. It's the reason that he would get up. It was the reason that he kept going along the journey, even though he knew what waited for him at the end. It was the love that compelled his life. Paul says that compels him. The work of the gospel, this, this love of God made manifest in the person, in the work of Jesus Christ, this love uh, that compelled Paul toward obedience had completely rewired his heart. It had completely transformed his life. For the love of Christ controls us because we have included this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. How many of you in here this morning either have children or you've been around children? Um, children, by default, are like the seagulls on Finding Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. Right? That's, <laughs> they don't have to be trained that way. They, that's not like how I raised Ethan, like, hey, buddy, your first one's going to be mine. Mine. They don't have to be taught 
that. It's their default posture. And you know what? We don't outgrow that, but for the grace of God. We don't ever outgrow that except for the grace of God. In fact, the banner over every human being outside of the gospel is what about me? What, 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 what about me? What about what I want? What about what I deserve? What about me? In fact, you know what? Some people even choose a church under that banner. Come on now. What about what I want? What about what I need? What about what I deserve? Can I talk to you this morning? This mine, mine, mine thing is what makes you so miserable. One of the most profound truths found in scripture is that the one who wants to gain his life actually loses it. And the one who loses it actually gains it. Hear me this morning. The more you make your life about you, the more miserable of a human being you're going to be. There's just, there's just no way around it. The more you gladly stay under the banner of what about me? Who's thinking about me? Who's giving me what I deserve? Who's acknowledging my worth? The more you live under that church, the more miserable of a human being that you're going to be. The more you make life about you, the more unsatisfied you are. This compelling love found in Christ, it it had completely rewired Paul's life. It had completely transformed his heart so that the banner of what about me has now vanished and he had been freed up to live for someone other than himself. One of the things the gospel does is it rewires how we see ourselves. So obedient isn't difficult under the love of God because we see ourselves differently. Why? Because we know that God is for us. We know God is going to protect us. He's going to provide. He is He is all that we need. That's what should compel us toward being obedient. We know that God is for us. And if God be for us, the Bible says, who can be against us? It rewired how Paul saw himself. It created a type of humility. It created a right way of seeing himself that set him free. Verse 16 says, from now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regarded him thus no longer. He says, not only as how I see myself been transformed, it's been changed, but now I see others, uh, I see how I, uh, but now how I see others has been changed. How I view my brother has been changed. How I view my sister has been changed. How I view the lost has been changed church once you once you have an experience of this love that i'm talking about once you have an experience with jesus christ once you have this experience of the grace of god the experience that that enabled this experience that uh, uh, of the love and the mercy and all that god is the awesomeness of god that experience will enable you to extend love This carrot, if this is your carrot, it will help you extend grace where you never thought it would be possible. It enables you to extend mercy. You see what the gospel does is it removes our ability to judge others harshly. Instead, you know what it creates? Empathy. It creates compassion. The Apostle Paul says we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. But we don't regard him according to the flesh anymore. He says, we once saw him as an enemy. 
We once saw him as someone we shouldn't submit to. We once saw him as someone we wanted nothing to do with. But Paul said, now we don't see like that anymore. We don't see him in that way. We are in glad submission. To what? To what, Paul? What are you submitting to? His love. We are in glad pursuit of obedience to all that he has commanded. Why? Why? Because of his love. Oh, that we would get a fresh glimpse of the love of God here this morning. How easy it is for us to become so casual with this love. To sing songs about it every service. But the words, the thoughts, the experience has become so commonplace in our life. Where there's no longer any more transformation. There's no more awe factor. Paul said we once saw him this way, but we don't see him that way any longer. And when we learn to see him this way, it not only transforms how we see ourselves, but also how we see everyone. This is what's compelling Paul's obedience. Paul is saying, the love of God compels me to risk my life. It compels me to start churches. It compels me to live in plenty and to live in want. Paul said, I have found Christ to be enough. This is what has compelled me. This was, this is what is driving me. This is what has compelled me to get up off the ground yet after another, if Paul's saying after another attempted murder on my life and go right back to ministering to people who are rejecting what I'm saying and even attempting to kill me. This is what's driving me to Jerusalem. It is the love of God that was made manifest in a man named Jesus Christ. This love compels me. It has changed how I see myself. It has changed how I see others. It has compelled me to be compassionate with people. Would you stand with me this morning? What motivates you? Why do you do what you do? Why do you live the way you live? Why do you act the way you act? Why do you treat people the way you treat people? Church, if you find your motive outside of the love of God, outside of Jesus, friends, you need a great reality check. Check your motives. Check your reasonings. What's your carrot? Because I don't know about you, but I'm interested in a transformation. I want to be transformed so that I see Jesus differently. I see myself differently. I see you differently. I want to be compelled to be compassionate with people. 
in the book of Acts at the first revival there in Jerusalem. Let me say this. I believe in miracles, signs, and wonders. I believe in those, those experiences. I believe in those things happening. I believe in the demonstration of God's power. I believe in those things. But you look it up, study it out. In that first revival, that's not what got the attention of Jerusalem. What did get their attention? What did? It was when they saw the disciples loving one another, loving people, being compassionate with people. And Jerusalem takes a step back and they said, they're starting to act like Jesus. They're starting to love like Jesus. They're starting to be compassionate like Jesus. It's not just miracles, signs, and wonders that's going to get the attention of your family or your coworkers or this city, but it's going to be when, when they see you acting like Jesus and loving, which produces miracles, signs, and wonders. Church, we think the miracles are coming through faith, but church, the miracles are not coming through faith. They're coming through compassion. More miracles happen when the Bible says that Jesus was moved with compassion. Compassion. When you look on the needs of a person and you are moved with compassion. When you look on somebody who is who, who who needs Jesus, who desperately needs Jesus, they need something in this life, and you say, "Hey, I don't have anything to give you, uh, uh, but such as I do have, in the name of Jesus, rise up." But but if but if He is not your carrot, you you just bypass. You don't see it. We miss it. What's your carrot? What are you motivated by this morning? What pushes you forward in this life? This love so transformed Paul so much that in verse 17 he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This love, this experience, this gospel message has so transformed Paul. He said, hey, the old me is gone. The old me is gone. That old life, that old lifestyle, I don't see through those eyes anymore. God's given me a fresh vision. And it's what motivated him. It's what pushed him forward. Would you bow your head, close your eyes with me this morning as they begin to sing?